I, I do appreciate so very much the, uh, the high honor to be able to stand in this pulpit today on this very special day and uh, speak to you all. And I don't want to speak just to moms today, though there'll be a bit of an angle perhaps in that direction, but I do feel like it's a divine appointment and consequently God has a word for you here, no matter what's going on in your life. But for a pastor to share his pulpit on such a special day is a high honor, and I appreciate that, Pastor Brown. Thank you so very much. And uh, we just love you all so much. I I love to uh, be at a place where you feel at home, and we feel at home here and have just grown these many years to uh, call more, uh, really, you're more than, uh, than friends to us, your family. And so we're delighted to be here, delighted to be with my dear wife. Uh, the mother of our household, who uh, is always a a joy to have her in service today. I'd like you to stand again, if you wouldn't mind. Take your Bible in your hands. And uh, I love to stand when we read God's Word because I think there's a subliminal message that's communicated there of the value and the importance that we place upon God's Word. And so uh, let's turn to the book of 2 Kings. And uh, I'm going to read more verses perhaps than I would normally, but I I want to tell you a story. Today may be a bit of story day, and so uh, let's just let the Scripture speak to us by one of the most powerful stories in the Scripture that involves a particular woman. And uh, maybe if if the Lord will help me and give me a, a bit of anointing today, I'll be able to convey this story to you in such a way that will inspire you Uh, with her story. So 2 Kings chapter number 4, let's begin reading in verse number 8. Verse number 8. Now it happened one day that Elisha went to Shunem. Uh, Shunem was in an area uh, near the Jezreel Valley. It was lush and beautiful, away from the Judean deserts and the wilderness areas that are so often referenced in relationship to the prophets, frankly, and to most of Jesus' ministry. Shunem was a beautiful place, lush. Uh, Agriculture was strong in this area. And it happened to be that Elisha was a circuit preacher. He was a traveling prophet. I can identify with Elisha a bit. And uh, this particular area was an area that he frequented as he's traveling from bases of ministry operation. And that's where Shunem was, where there was a notable woman. If you have a highlight or a pen, perhaps you would like to underline or highlight that phrase. So let's read it together. Now it happened one day that Elisha went to Shunem where there was a notable woman, and she persuaded him to eat some food. So it was as often as he passed by, he would turn in there to eat some food. And she said to her husband, Look now, I know that this is a holy man of God who passes by us regularly. Please let us make a small upper room on the wall. Let us put a bed there for him and a table and chair and lampstand. And so it will be whenever he comes to us, he can turn in there. Now it happened one day that he came there and he turned into the upper room and lay down there. Then he said to Gehazi, his servant, call this Shunammite woman. When he had called her, she stood before him. And he said, to her, uh, she, or he said to him, speaking to Gehazi, so the woman, get the picture, the woman is now standing in the doorway of this room that she has built for the prophet. And the prophet speaks to his servant because he doesn't speak to her directly. It would have been taboo in that culture for him to do that. So he speaks to Gehazi, his servant. In verse 13, say now to her, look 
you have been, uh, you have been concerned for us with all this care. What can I do for you? Do you want me to speak on your behalf to the king or to the commander of the army? If you have a highlighter uh, or an underlining pencil or pen, you might want to highlight that. We'll get back to that in a moment. Do you want me to speak on your behalf to the king or to the commander of the army? She answered, I dwell among my own people. That was her way of saying, I didn't do this to get anything from you. Uh, I'm quite content with my situation. This is an impressive woman. So he said, what then is to be done for her? Speaking to Gehazi, and Gehazi answered, actually, she has no son and her husband is old. So he called, he said to her, call her. When he had called her, she stood in the doorway. Then he said, about this time next year, you will embrace a son. This was not prophecy. This was a decree. He did not prophesy a child in her womb. He decreed it there. That's the kind of power this man walked in with God. About this time next year, her response, No, my Lord, man of God, do not lie to your maidservant, but the woman conceived and bore a son when the appointed time had come of which Elisha had told her. And the child grew. Now it happened one day that he went out to the field with his father and to the reapers, and he said to his father, My head, my head. He's having a sunstroke. So he said to his servant, Carry him to his mother. Please highlight that. Carry him to his mother. When he had taken him and brought him to his mother, he sat on her knees until noon, and then he died. And she went up and laid him on the bed of the man of God, the room she had built. My paraphrase, the room she had built into the bed, the room that she had furnished, and shut the door and went out. And she called her husband and said, Please send me one of the young men and one of the donkeys that I may run to the man of God and come back. So he said, Why are you going to him today? It is neither the new moon nor the Sabbath. And she said, It is well. Mind your own business. I like this woman. How about you? Then she saddled a donkey and said to her servant, Drive and go forward. Now he would have ridden on the donkey in front of her or would have run alongside, and she would, but she would not have driven the donkey herself. That's why you read that. Do not slack the pace for me unless I tell you. And so she departed and went to the man of God at Mount Carmel. So it was when the man of God saw her afar off that he said to his servant Gehazi, Look, the Shunammite woman, please run now to meet her and say to her, Is it well with you? Is it well with your husband? Is it well with your child? And she answered, It is well. Now when she came to the man of God at the hill, she caught him by the feet. This is taboo, you understand. He would not speak to her directly, nor would he allow himself to be touched by her, nor would he touch her. But Gehazi came near to push her away, but the man of God said, Let her alone, for her soul is in deep distress, and the Lord has hidden it from me and has not told me. Let's pray together. Lord, I thank you for the anointing of the Holy Spirit that's upon your word. Make it plain to us, Lord, today. Lord, we open our filters and we open our lenses and we open our hearts on this Mother's Day, Lord. And we just ask that you will deposit something in us that is renowned. Deposit something in us, Lord, that will change us. 
that can literally alter our family and our lives. Bless every mother that's in this room and every one that's already with you, the family that's gathered here that's lost a mom or is waiting to see her again in eternity, Lord. Lord, you know every condition in this room. You know those who the memories of their mother are cherished and those whose memories are painful. But I pray, Lord, in these moments we share together that you will do what only you can do. And in a way that I cannot, I pray, Lord, that you will make clarity and let the word be nourishment to the joints and to the bones of all of us who listen. In Jesus' great name, amen. And you may be seated finally. There are situations and circumstances that make or break you. These are the moments and seasons that demand we give all we have and beyond. Such as motherhood. Can I get a mom's amen? How many of you mothers, uh, before you were pregnant and before you had children, really didn't know what you were getting into? I have to tell you, I think moms are superheroes. Disguised as normal people. I heard one man say one time, and I thought it was true and funny, that heroes are not born, they're cornered. And I think that's true. Motherhood is kind of like getting cornered. And it tests you to see really what you're made of. And those situations can demand so much of you. And as I think about moms and I think about that sort of thing, I I have to tell you, I think you're overworked and underpaid. Well, I love preaching this kind of message, honestly. I'm going to get fed good this afternoon, not have to do nothing. Yeah, guys, they're overworked and underpaid. Did you know, as a matter of fact, that Salary.com just released this week the latest uh, calculus, the calculation of what the average mother does and what it's worth annually. And did you know they say that the base pay of the average mother, if you consider all the washing clothes and all the cooking and child care services and and, uh, all the house maintenance, cleaning, uh, those kinds of things, all the errands, grocery shopping, come on, ladies, get with me this morning. If you consider all that they do and value it at just over $10 an hour, uh, some would you know, consider that the needed uh, minimum wage. If, if you just valued it at the current minimum wage, it would be roughly $115,000 a year. I really thought I'd have a rounding applause there and I'd have to wait to kind of start my message, you know, because how many of you moms would like to get paid what you're worth? Yeah, there you go. Guys, how many of us wish we could pay them what they're worth? Come on. Some of y'all are going to be eating bologna. Uh, I don't know. I mean, I'm not the sharpest knife in the drawer, but there's something so special about motherhood. And the fact of the matter is, when you consider the challenge of motherhood, it speaks to the deepest part of life and presents us the challenge. But I found that challenges are often met 
by a source inside of us that we don't really understand fully. It's just something that's there. It's instinctive. Uh, I was reading about the process of, of childbirth uh, not long ago, and, and I, I read an amazing thing. Did you know that when a mother has a child, of course, she, her body begins to prepare for that child before it arrives. But when a mom has a child, did you know that once the child starts to nurse, that there is a chemical in the saliva of the child that communicates with the brain of the mother to literally create a custom formula of her mother's milk to provide the nourishment that that child needs like nothing else? That's a wow moment, isn't it? I mean, that's amazing. It's amazing how the demand communicates with the supply to fulfill and meet the need. And that's really how it is with motherhood. But it's really, I think, how it is in everything. It seems like God would love to have a generation. I, I, I spoke at a college graduation yesterday, and I told those graduates that it's time that there be in, within this generation a group of people that will arise to meet the demand of the challenges of our country. I need a better amen than that. This has happened historically. There's a case in point that I read about that I thought was very interesting. It was the, the West Point graduating class of 1915. 1915. Oh, my, all the things that were going on. The world was at a war. Trenches were being dug and fought in in Europe. They called it the war to end all wars. They thought it was the great war. They thought that there could never be a war greater, but little did they know in just one generation further down the road, there would be a war that was greater and a war that was bigger. That year, West Point graduated 164 students, and something happened that's never happened before and never happened since. The thing that happened on that particular year is they, with the 164 students that graduated, 59 generals. 59 generals became part of that class. I hope this is right, E.G. 59, 24 brigadier general. My brother-in-law's got a master's or a doctorate or something in history, so he'll correct me later if I'm wrong. 24 brigadier generals, 24 major generals, seven three-star generals, two four-star generals, two five-star generals. It had never happened in the history of the academy before or since. But you understand the need was great. Hitler had to be stopped. Nazism had to be vanquished. There was a demand and an urgent need that God ordained that group of men with the leadership ability to meet that demand and lead this world in freedom, in the battle of freedom. It's kind of interesting that I would use that analogy and that illustration on a day that we're talking about motherhood. But, you know, I kind of think that's how the challenge is for motherhood. You're, you're not, as a mom, you're not just a genetic breeding pool. You're not just a surrogate life giver. When God births a child in your womb and, and incubates that child for nine months, God has a destiny for that child that is often you are so involved in that and the child is really dependent on your cooperation for the plan of God to be accomplished in the life of that child. There is not a more significant role 
that you can play in our culture or any culture since Adam and Eve first were in the garden than to be a mother. There is not a more noble thing or a higher calling or a greater ministry that you can accomplish than to be a mother that is like the woman that we read about in Scripture today. Amen. And nor do you have any more power or influence in any position you could ever hold than that of being a mom. I've heard it said, and I believe it's true, that the hand that rocks the cradle rules the world. You know why? Because of influence. Because you have the influence in that life and in the life of that child. I, I, some of my earliest, I was thinking about some of my early memories with mom. And I have to tell you, mom, that one of my earliest memories of you, are you afraid you're scared to death of what I'm going to say right now? Aren't you? Yeah. How good is that dinner? <laughs> one of my earliest recollections of my mom was her hands tying a Superman's cape around my neck. It's true. And I have to tell you that all of my life and development, I was reared in an environment of expectation. I had to stop and shed a tear as I spoke to that graduating class yesterday with all the doctors and all the regal and dignitaries and politicians in attendance. I remembered that yesterday about your hands tying that Superman's cape around. As I put the hood, the doctoral hood on and dressed in regalia for the moment, I remembered you tying that Superman's cape and acting like I was Superman. Man, I, for a long time, I thought I could fly. And the fact is, as you raised me, you instilled and installed in me that expectation that I should be able to leap tall buildings and stop a speeding bullet. And it has been, in, all, in many ways, the defining point of my life. Are you in the room with me this morning? Maybe not a sermon per se, just stories. The power that you have to speak into the lives of your children. You understand, I, we all know they're aggravating. We all know, listen, some of us have hung around your kids. We know they're aggravating. It's, it's don't be upset by it. It's, it's just part of being a kid. But it's something about a mom that has that ability to look past dirty faces and runny nose and, 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 uh, and, and those. Uh, I had a friend that, that, you know, he didn't call it throwing up. He called it splattering. Uh, you know, that can look past the splatters on the windshield on your way to church. You know, when you're, you're dressed and you're ready to go and everything's ready and everybody gets in the car and you happen to be carrying the baby and then all of a sudden there's this weird sound and it splatters. The baby splatters from either end. <laughs> and suddenly you realize that you can't make it to church on time. The first thought most of you have is I'm going to be judged as that woman who can't get to church on time. But if these people only knew that I have got to go back and change my clothes. There's something powerful about a mother that can look beyond all of that, uh, the peripheral stuff and the day-to-day -day average. That's why I say they are superheroes disguised as everyday people in the run-of-the-mill life, day-to-day, -day, serving their family and instilling greatness in their children. And then there are those uh, who have been involved in spiritual motherhood and perhaps you did not have children naturally. I, I'm, I have a, a new book that's just about to be released here prayerfully in the next month or so. The, the first section of it will be released called Living Your Leadership Dreams. 
And in that book, I talk about Bill Bright and Vonette and the opportunity that I had a few years ago to go and have breakfast with them in their home before he died. Now, you understand Bill Bright was the founder of Campus Crusade for Christ, the largest Christian organization in the world and has been for over 30 years. 27,000 full-time paid employees around the world. It's a mammoth ministry. It was a, a milestone moment. But the interesting thing about Bill Bright is he wasn't saved in an evangelistic crusade. He wasn't really saved even in a church service. He was led to the Lord by a little lady that taught his Sunday school class. This lady's name was Henrietta Mears. Henrietta Mears, was a, a, she had a great passion for God. She had been raised in a Christian home. Her family had taught her the tenets and the precepts of the truth and the gospel and a, a tremendous impact, great family, and she wanted to go to the mission field. So when she was born in 1890, and so in the early teens when she was old enough, she set her mind on China and Africa and wanted to spend her life serving in the foreign fields of missions. The problem was every time she tried to work it out and get there, the door closed, and she just was never able to make it happen. She tried on numerous occasions. In the teens, make, making eight trips to Europe. That's a big deal in the early 1900s for a woman alone. Can I get an amen for that? But one thing she did do and seemed to always be blessed at was teaching Sunday school. It seemed like she was a, a teacher by trade, became a school principal, but that was kind of her moonlight job in her mind because her real job was to teach the word of the Lord in her local church in Sunday school. And she taught Sunday school, and man, did she ever teach Sunday school. She became fairly well-known. She began to also be a writer, and she started writing curriculum, and various churches began to use her curriculum. And then word came of how great and gifted she was at teaching Sunday school all the way to California. She was living in Minneapolis, and all the way to California, they, the word spread until the pastor of First Presbyterian Church of Hollywood, California, found out about her and contacted her, came actually and preached at her ch church where she was serving, and invited her to join his staff in Hollywood. You understand this was the late 20s now of the 1900s. She prayed about it, couldn't get the missions doors to open, so she thought, okay, that's what I'm going to do. And so she moved to Hollywood, California, became the director of education at the local Hollywood First Presbyterian Church and they were something like 400 in Sunday school attendance when she came. She arrived somewhere in the late 20s, 27, 28. And by 1933, their average Sunday school attendance on a Sunday morning was 6,500 people. She became a spiritual mother to those students. She tapped into something that she might not even known, certainly probably couldn't have defined or maybe uh, articulated. But she tapped into a motherly gift of teaching and training. And she became a mother to those children. And it wasn't long till she became a mother to those teachers. She innovated something really new that no one had ever heard of and wouldn't brandish again for nearly 100 years called small groups. You say, how did they go from 400 to 6,000? She broke students into groups of about 12, trained a teacher and equipped the teacher, and then helped them to teach the gospel and the word to those students. And the, and the thing split and split and split and split. Are you all in the room with me this morning? 
We're just talking. In, in those years, there were over 400 men and women who were called to full-time ministry out of her Sunday school class. Over 400. One couple that she led to the Lord personally was a man named Bill Bright, and he introduced his young wife, and the other, her name was Vonette. There are more people that have been, listen, listen to the magnitudes. There have been more people that have been won to Christ through the ministry of Bill Bright and Campus Crusade for Christ than all of Christianity combined for 2,000 years. And it all came out of a motherly teacher in a Sunday school class. Incidentally, family life today, Dennis Rainey, a disciple of Henrietta Mears. Billy Graham attended her youth camps and says that she was the one of the most influential people in his life. Are you in the room? A group called Navigators, which is on the top ten list of largest Christian organizations. Young Life, the largest youth camp ministry in all 17 major world ministries came out of the Sunday school class of Henrietta Mears who though she passionately desired to go to the mission field herself, listen, was forced to settle for God's best. Never underestimate the power of a sold-out woman. Come on, somebody in the room with me. I said, never. You know how women become women of renown? It's by finding God's best and doing what you're good at. The poet Arden said, you owe it to all of us to get on with what you're good at. And I agree with him. How about you? (laughs) And that really goes and transcends gender, doesn't it? I mean, the fact is we're talking about motherhood today, but every single one of you, God has a purpose for your life. Every single one of you, God has a destiny. You may think, well, I'm, I'm a baker or I'm a butcher or I'm a carpenter or I'm a lawyer or I'm a doctor. These things are things that, by which you make a living, but God has a spiritual destiny for you. God has a purpose for your life. There is something you were sent here to do. There is a life that you were sent here to impact. Perhaps the quickest way is through your experience of motherhood. But the truth is it transcends that and all of us have a responsibility. You understand authority in the kingdom of God is not power, it's responsibility. You weren't just an accident. I don't care what you've been through, what you've done, or what's been done to you. The fact of the matter is, God planned you before you were ever known in your mother's womb. He told the prophet, before you were formed, I knew you. David said, before I was even conceived in my mother's womb, you knew me. Such knowledge is too high for me and I cannot attain it. It blows my mind, he says, that you knew me before I was born and knew you and still likes you. That's pretty astounding, isn't it? There are five points that I want to pull out of this message for you that we see. And then I want to tell you the last part of the story of the Shunammite woman. Because see, when you discover that purpose, when you discover 
that opportunity in your life and you seize it. When you discover what God wants to do in your life and you say yes, there's a stream of favor that God releases in your life that extends beyond you into your children and to your children's children. The first thing that I see about this woman, this Shunammite woman, first of all, you have to wonder what her life was like because you understand in the culture of the day, it was common for an older man to marry a younger. We often point at the Shunammite woman and assume that she was barren, but the fact is she was married to an old guy. And I'm, not, I'm pretty sure they didn't have Viagra, if you know what I'm saying. I hope that didn't offend anybody. We just point the finger at the woman and say, well, she was barren. But if we get to the end, Gehazi said, we see no children around and her husband is old. So what would life have been like for a young woman, perhaps in her late teens or early 20s, to have been in an arranged marriage, married to a man that could have been in his late 50s or perhaps beyond? No romantic passion that drew them together, most likely. It was a marriage of convenience that perhaps knitted two families together through a clannal alliance, maybe. There's a lot of things we could fill in the blanks we don't know, but we can surmise from the culture and from the storylines of the people's lives that we do know about, that this could have possibly been the case where the Shunammite woman was locked in this marriage of obligation, but she's an honorable woman. You, if you look at the whole story, she's constantly, though incidentally, she's the one leading the way. If you look at the story, that would stand to reason if her husband perhaps was an elderly man and she's making the decisions, she has taken over the estate, she is now their, their people of affluence to the degree that in that region of the, of the Valley of Jezreel and that part toward uh, the Mediterranean in, in Egypt or in Israel where, where there's such lush farmland, perhaps she's running the operation and she's become the ramrod. You know, I don't mean in an evil way, but of necessity she has assumed those roles. I'm so appreciative, listen, I'm so appreciative of how even though she sensed the opportunity to do something great, she went to her husband and said, let's talk about this. She, though she perhaps could have had the power, yet she included her husband and honored his position as head of their family. I need a really good amen for that, even if it's baritone, you know what I'm saying? Yeah. Baritone Amen. So what do I see in this woman's life? I see, first of all, that she is a seeker. She's a seeker. She has to be. She's carrying a big load, and she has become famous for her ingenuity and her industry and the ability that she has to accomplish the task. She has become notable. In that original language, in the Hebrew there, it is affluent. It is well-to-do. She's been successful. This woman's got her chops. She's got it together. She knows what's happening. but yet so considerate of her family. But there had to have been a longing, nagging void because here she is in this relationship of honor and she has no child. And in that culture, you were viewed to be cursed by God if you didn't have a child. 
And so here's this woman who is carrying the family business. She's good at it, but yet she's a seeker. She's longing. Something is missing in her life. Something She's longing for something more in her life. And she senses that in this prophet that's passing by, that he's not a charlatan and he's not a crook and he's not a Teflon preacher. No, no, there's something special about this man. He walks into authority and in the power of the Holy Spirit is a man of God though she doesn't know him, most likely had never spoken to him directly, you understand. And even with that, she goes to her husband and said, surely this is a holy man of God. I don't know how she would have discerned that. I don't know. Perhaps she saw him praying as he passed. Perhaps there was just an aura of him, around him of the presence of God. But she tells her husband, listen, husband, this man is special. Will you please allow me to have a room built, a hotel room, because he's staying out under the trees. He's living in the fields. He's traveling by here and he needs a place to stay. We can do something about the plight of this man of God. Will you cooperate with me? How it would change our nation if the women in our country returned to that role of seeking passionately after the presence of God and desiring that nothing in life will satisfy them except the manifest presence of God. She was spiritually sensitive. I've got to move quickly. Number two, she was exceptionally generous. But you know, I found, <clears throat> excuse me, I found that people that are spiritually sensitive often become exceptionally generous. It seems to me that if you look at the fruit and the gifts of the Spirit and the fruit of the Spirit, that there's something embedded in the fruit of the Spirit about generosity. She's not content to let him pass by when she can do something about it. So not only is she looking for the presence of God, but she's also generous. Somebody say generosity. It's hard for you to be spiritually motivated. It's hard for you to be spiritually mature if you're financially stingy. Amen, Brother Brassfield. That's pretty good preaching for a young guy like me. Look at your neighbor and say, you can't be spiritually mature and financially stingy. I don't want to make anybody mad, but that's a fact jack. You know why that is? Because the heart of God is to give. And when you're a seeker and you're looking for his presence, all you need, we sang about it this morning. In your presence, there's fullness of joy. In your presence, what does it say? Heaven and earth become one. In the presence of God, there is a transformation that takes place in your life that begins to alter your values and your priorities. Suddenly, it's not just about you getting ahead and having the finest car or the nicest home. Suddenly, you begin to look for opportunities to let the power and the presence of God flow through your life into the lives of others. Suddenly, you're looking for opportunities to write a check. You're looking for opportunities to go and serve. You're looking for opportunities to join something that makes someone's life better. It's just what happens. She's spiritually sensitive. She's a seeker. She's generous. She longed to entertain the presence of God in her house. She wasn't, listen, she wasn't content for the presence of God to be in a field. She was 
She wasn't content for the presence of God to be someone else's experience. She wasn't content for the presence of God to pass her house and never visit. So she built a room. That's my third point. She was willing to alter her routine to accommodate something she wanted bad enough to gamble her entire life and reputation because, you know, a woman married to an old man with a young prophet living on the wall is a reality show waiting to happen. She was willing to alter her routine to accommodate something she wanted so bad that she would even risk her reputation. In other words, she would hold nothing back. Two more points. She was determined when the child died. She was determined. Because the story goes, you know, she didn't just do all this magnanimous stuff, right, and all this wonderful stuff. She, didn't, she wasn't just generous and a seeker looking for the presence of God. Let me get in the glory of God and raise my hand. She wasn't just looking for that opportunity because trouble came knocking to her door. But you know what I found? That when you've built a room in your house for the presence of God, when trouble comes knocking on your door, you know where to take it. The boy's out with his dad, has a sunstroke. I read the story to you. The dad, this is, the dad knew to send him to mom, and mom knew to send him to the upper room. <laughs> this is like, God, I'm, this, I'm not leveraging you anything, but remember that room that I built for your presence? Remember that bed that I made for your, pray, your prophet to sleep in? Remember the lampstand? And the, I'm, not, I'm not one to remind you, God, and there's certainly no implication of obligation, but let me just remind you that I didn't ask for this child. You gave it to me. And yes, I did for you, and then you did for me. But I didn't ask you for this child, so it's your job to take care of this child. You understand when you are a woman that is in, in, in a sense in a relationship like this with an older man and for whatever reason can't have a child and suddenly the man of God speaks and he doesn't prophesy, he decrees that child's going to be born. You understand that touched the deepest longings of her soul. Houses didn't matter, lands didn't matter, cars didn't matter, clothes, <laughs> clothes didn't matter. The latest handbags. Stuff with coach on it didn't make any difference. When that man said, you want a son? I can almost hear her voice break and the tears begin to stream. Oh man of God, do not lie to me. Do not toy with me. That speaks to me of a longing heart. In words not spoken out of kindness and consideration perhaps for a man who couldn't give her a child and she had resigned herself that she would pass through life without the joy of holding something from her very own body because she loved this man. So don't mess with my emotions. It's interesting because the prophet doesn't even respond. I've spoken what I've spoken. She conceived, bore the child. Now the child's lived and developed. And on a hot day, in the fields of labor, not getting enough water, being dehydrated, 
the child screams with his head and collapses. My promise. That's my promise. That was my reward. These are the times that will demand something of you. These will the moments are the moments that will demand the revelation of what's really inside of you. She takes the child to the place she built, to the bed she'd ordered. <laughs> and then she prepares to go find that guy. And I love what she said when the servant and the, her husband, what are you doing? It's all going to be all right. When you've been entertaining the presence of God that long, you know whatever happens is going to be all right. Whatever you're going through, whatever's going on in your life, mom, dad, if you've built a place in your house for the presence of God to dwell, no matter what happens, even if it involves your promise, you can trust God with it. But she was determined. It's like trust God with strings attached. I'm going to trust you but you're going to come through or I'm going to hunt you up. And if necessary, I'll hunt you down. I'm almost finished. The prophet goes, the child is resurrected. Wow, what a story. What a story. But that woman's generosity and kindness and entreatment for the presence of God didn't just give her the favor in that momentary situation. When God gives you favor, it's for life. See, that's not the end of the story with the Shunammite woman nor her son. Because a few years later, there was a famine that was coming to the land and that same prophet that she had taken care of came back to her house. When he arrived, he told her, he said, you need to get out of town because there's a famine that God's ordered on this land. And you need to go away for seven years. Seven years in a foreign country at the word of the Lord because God wasn't going to let that woman be destroyed in a famine. In other words, she was going to know what God knew. That's the level of favor this woman is now walking in. God gave her a child miraculously. Child was threatened, died. God gave him back miraculously. Now God says, I'm not just interested in your immediate family. I'm interested in your economics because it's not going to be good. The, the market's about to collapse. There's a bubble that's about to break. You need to get out of that and get into a safe place and stay for seven years. She did exactly what the prophet said. Somebody say, she did what the prophet said. Sometimes God's speaking and we're not listening. But she did what the prophet said. And you know what? What the prophet said would happen, happened. And then at the end of those seven years, she came back home because the prophet had told her to do that. And she came back home and guess what had happened? In her beautiful estate, it was a Goldilocks story. Somebody was sitting at her table, somebody was sleeping in her bed, somebody was eating her porridge. And it's interesting that the king's 
influence she didn't need years before and she refused. And the army guy that she didn't ask for influence with, she didn't need it then. Suddenly, she needs some help. So I'm sure there was a trigger in her mind that remembered, wait a minute, that prophet told me that if I needed him, that I could go to him and he talked to the king on my behalf. Well, but you know, where's the prophet? Where's the prophet? He's out of town. But what had happened is Gehazi had sinned his servant and got kicked out of boot camp. He got kicked out of, out, out of prophet school. And listen, in those days, if you were a servant to a prophet, you were a special person, but the employment opportunities were relatively limited. And so what happened is he became the, the TV of the king. He became cable. You know what? You say, what in the world do you mean by that? Well, often in those days, people with experience like this would become hired by the king to tell stories of the exploits of the prophets. The king would have a good meal, invite his friends in, and they would have the servant of a prophet to come in and tell us the exploits of this prophet. Tell us the story. If you'll look at King, 2 Kings chapter 8, this is exactly what happens. And isn't it funny? How, love, how many love it when God works it all out for you? How many love it when God's all... You don't know what's going on. You don't know how it's going to work out, but God's behind the scenes because he says, look, this person's been a seeker. This person's been looking for my presence. This person's got my favor. So let me see how I can work this all out to their good. So she says, I'm going to go see the king and see if he'll help me with the people that are, that are, that are uh, trespassing on my property. When she gets there, the king has asked Gehazi, who happened to be the servant of Elisha, for a story. Guess what story Gehazi decides to tell him when the woman is coming through the doors at the palace. She's walking through the outer courts, going through security, and going through all the metal detectors, and going through all the layers of security. The king is being entertained by a story from Gehazi. Gehazi said, man, I got a good one for you. Let me tell you, you're going to love this story. See, there was this woman in Shunem one time, and he began to tell the woman the story of the woman of Shunem that built a house for the presence of God in her house. Then God miraculously gave her a son. That son died and Elisha went and raised that child from the dead and the doors burst in and if you'll read the story Gehazi says, oh my gosh here is the woman and here is the son. Listen. Stand. Here is the woman, and here is the son. And the king said, ma'am, what can I do for you? I've just heard your story. And she says, well, king, I was told by the prophet to go away for seven years, and he told me to return to my land. And when I got there, there were people on my land and in my house that wouldn't move. And the king said, Captain of the host. <laughs> Listen, he said, go run those people off this woman's land and everything that she lost for seven years of harvest, pay her out of my treasury. You can read the story when you get home. I've been speaking about motherhood today, but what about you? All of you. Are you willing? What are you willing to do to matter? What are you willing to do to matter?
What are you willing to do to make a difference? What are you willing to do to change the destiny and lives of your children? Can I tell you one last story? You've been so patient today. And I only come around about once or twice a year, so. Yesterday I spoke at the graduation and there was a professor on campus there. He spent many years at ORU and then he was hired there at Ecclesia. His name was Ken Brown. His wife was on staff there. She was the registrar at ORU as well and then was hired in retirement to come and work for this small Christian college in Springdale that I was visiting. She came up to me and he passed away in January. He'd had a stroke, kind of like Dad had had, Mom, and had been incapacitated. He had his mind, but his other faculties, his eyesight, he was in a wheelchair, but he loved the Scripture, loved the Word of the Lord. His wife came up to me during the rehearsal and said, would you wear Dr. Ken's colors tomorrow? And I said, I esteemed him so highly. I said, it would be a distinct honor for me to wear his doctoral hood. It's interesting because there was a Cambodian couple there who had become his caretakers. And in the process of taking care of him, this Cambodian man with broken English would read the scripture to Dr. Ken. In the last two years, he read it through cover to cover seven and a half times. Seven and a half times. Can you imagine the complexities of that through trying to translate and words that he didn't understand? Through the process, this Cambodian man is now a minister of the gospel. We ordained him. We ordained him while we were there. And get this. He said to me that while he was reading the scripture, Dr. Ken would pause. He couldn't see, but he would pause and explain. And as he would explain, he would write in Cambodian. He translated a thousand pages of study notes while he read the scripture hour after hour after hour. I wore his colors yesterday. Never underestimate the impact of a life that surrendered to God. Never underestimate what you could do, what you could be, what just might change if you would be a seeker. Bow your heads and close your eyes, would you please? I know this is Mother's Day. But I've been gripped. This weekend has been a very influential weekend. I believe that there are perhaps those under the sound of my voice that you're not sure what I want you to do, but you're already making up your mind that even with the late hour you want to respond. 
If you're here today and you'd say, Brother Brassfield, I don't know the Lord. I've never made Jesus Lord of my life. But I've heard what you said. The story of a woman renowned. And I want that for my life. Very quickly, would you just slip your hand up? Just slip your hand up. Anyone in the room that doesn't know the Lord. What an opportunity for you to meet the Lord of glory on Mother's Day. Your life can be changed forever. Transformed in a moment. And the favor of God can flow through your life for a lifetime. All you have to do is say yes. Anyone? We cannot hear this word and not respond. So everyone in this room who would say from your heart today, Lord, I'll build you a room. I'll build you a place. Would you just step out from where you're standing? Saved or lost, it don't matter. I'll build you a room. I'll do something to make a difference. Count me in, Lord. Count me in, Lord. I'm going all in. All in. Holding nothing back. May my children hear prayer off my lips. May my children see a dad or a mom with the Bible open and on their lap. May they see a parent who says, I'm seeking the wisdom and the guidance of the Lord. We'll make that decision tomorrow about the car, about the house, or about the job. But today, I'm going to his presence and I'm building a room. I'm building a room. What do you say as we go into the summer, church? What do you say we make a commitment this summer that we're going to have revival because we're going to build a room? We're going to build a room in our house for the presence of God and we're going to seek God. We're going to invite Him to come and dwell among us, to breathe on us, to move in our families, in our children. What do you say? We build a room. You say, well, I need to feel something first. Don't I, aren't I supposed to get the goosebumps? Aren't, what, if, what, if, what do you say? We don't worry about that yet. Let's worry about the goosebumps after we build the room. Let's build a room. And then watch God make a difference. I told you that was the last story, but I got to tell you one more. Everybody look at me just a second. Many of you know I've been writing and talking about life for nearly a year. <laughs> just after the turn of the 1900s, great missionary movements were taking place. And there was one called One Way Missionaries. One Way Missionaries. Yeah, if that were a class, most of us probably wouldn't take it. One Way Missionaries. These were missionaries that felt called of God to go to places where the missionary endeavors before had failed and the missionaries had been murdered. There were a select group of people that called themselves One Way Missionaries that sold everything they had, packed their belongings in a coffin. True story. Packed their belongings in a coffin and bought a one-way ticket. This going to blow you away. Bought a one-way ticket 
to some distant land where death was certain because they were all in. They felt the call of God. One man was named A.W. Milne. A.W. Milne. A.W. Milne bought a ticket to the South Pacific Islands, the areas of Papua New Guinea and other islands inhabited by headhunters. Bought his ticket, got on the boat and sailed there, was dropped off like several before who had never been heard from again. This time, he happened to meet the chief on the shore. And in a miracle, the light of the gospel penetrated that darkness. That chief was saved. And Pastor Brown, it launched a 30-year ministry for A.W. Milne in the islands of the South Pacific. 30 years, he eventually died. And they buried him in that coffin he took. And the, the tribal chiefs inscribed on a stone, a monument in the main village, a tribute to A.W. Milne. When he came to us, there was no light. When he left us, there was no darkness. Yesterday, I had my picture taken with her. Yesterday, I stood with the, one of the first graduates from the islands of Papua New Guinea who received two degrees yesterday. She didn't know A.W. Milne. He was dead long before she was born. But I stood on the stage with the fruit of a man's life who said, I'm going to build a room. I'm going to build a room. I don't know what else I'm going to do, but I'm going to build a room in my house for God. raise your hands.